HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Rancho Gordo, growing the best and most interesting heirloom beans available. Learn more at ranchogordo.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's all about screens. We're diving into the world of TV, computers, and even VR to figure out how food consumption is shifted by a digital lens. Every course talks about a different topic within the Asian American identity through a very personal lens. And the three courses that are paired with VR, in it you're seeing a brushstroke by brushstroke recreation of the dish that you're about to eat. Most of us in the world live in urban areas. And so how much is the city already accidentally providing its residents? And how much more could it provide if um, we just made a priority? Tune in to Meet and 3. HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking with Tom Philpot, one of my favorite guests. Uh, Tom is Mother Jones's food and agricultural resp- correspondent, and he is co-host of Mojo's, that is Mother Jones, uh, Bite podcast. Tom's writing on food politics has appeared in numerous publications. He is currently based in North Carolina. In 2015, he won a Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism in the feature category for his story, California Goes Nuts, along with photographer Matt Black. In 2014, Phil Potts' Mother Jones blog, Food for Thought, was named Best Food Blog by the Association of Food Journalists. He's twice been a finalist for a James Beard Journalism Award. And in addition to writing, Tom is the co-founder of a small organic farm in North Carolina. And he comes to us today to talk about his newly published book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. Uh, It's published by Bloomsbury, and I strongly uh, recommend rushing out and buying this book. It was really a great read. Very, very interesting work. Um, And and set up in an interesting way, Tom, thanks so much for joining me again um, to talk about the book, because it really was, uh, talk about food for thought, man. Uh, It really was uh, both alarming and fascinating at the same time. I, I, I was sort of like, open-mouthed in horror and also admiration. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's what I'm always going for, Katie. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, but anyway, the way the book is set up, you have um, basically um, uh, profiled two of the major agricultural centers of the United States. Uh, the first one being Central Valley in California um, and some of the other, you know, Imperial Valley, but really Central Valley was your focus. And then the state of Iowa specifically sort of the corn and soy belt. So um, why don't you give us a little snapshot of each of those two regions and explain why they are so crucial to our food supply? Yeah, so both of them are, you know, great places to grow food for very different reasons. They've got these sort of natural um, attributes that make them really productive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as a result of that, they're both really important. I would say that the two linchpins of our food system, there are other places where people grow a lot of food, but these are the ones where it's most concentrated. And so in California, in the Central Valley, that's the source of a whole bunch of our fruits and vegetables. And almost all, basically all the almonds and pistachios we eat 
And a huge portion of milk for the West Coast is also produced there. So it's just, oh. just this incredibly productive growing region. And the problem there, so it's, you know, it's got this Mediterranean climate, uh, which makes it, you know, farmers love a Mediterranean climate because, you know, basically what you get is these long, hot summers and pretty mild winters. And that gives rise to a lot of opportunities for year-round food production. Yeah. And, you know, obviously a limiting factor is water. They don't tend to get uh, very much rain at all in the summertime. And that's true of the Central Valley. But the Central Valley has this really incredible resource that is the Sierra Nevada Mountains that captures, you know, basically a huge portion of the weather generated in the South Pacific in the winter months ends up in, you know, dropping down in snow in the, uh, in the Sierra Nevada and, um, and so that's this incredible water resource and this, you know, this infrastructure is built up over the last century or so um, to basically take that snow when it melts, as it melts in the summer and divert it into canals and aqueducts and deliver it to farms. And so you just get this, you know, perfect uh, combination of, you know, sunshine and water that makes it so productive. And so, Agriculture there has gotten very productive, very big. It's a huge industry. And the problem that I document in the book is that basically it's gotten too big for those water resources. It's gotten too big for that, you know, annual cache of, uh, of snow that happens. And it's basically overstripping its water resources. And farmers there are drawing down the aquifers under the Central Valley at this really alarming rate. Um, that, that, that can't go on forever. Yeah, of course um, not. And also uh, let's remind listeners that the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada over the last, you know, 10 years has been less and less. Am I not right in that? They're right. Getting less snowfall because of climate change. Right. So meanwhile, you're seeing this trend because of climate change of just, you know, a farmer farming there now who has been farming there for 20 or 30 years has in their lifetime seen, a, um, a steady, steady decline of the snowpack. And, um, and then you also get, you know, part of that trend is the infamous droughts that hit California. Um, mm -hmm. The last one that happened was 2011 to 2016 or so. And in that drought, you're talking about three years of essentially no snowpack at all. And so, you know, some years farmers are literally getting no snowpack and they're having to revert to, you know, 100% groundwater. Um, you know, water taken from aquifers uh, to to water these very, very, very thirsty crops they've got. Right. And then, so to shift over to Iowa, so if fruits, you know, if this is sort of our fruit and vegetable patch, well, Iowa is where our meat comes from. The corn and soybeans that are generated in Iowa, you know, basically course through the entire food system. But the most important thing they do is they feed the livestock industry. They literally are the, the, the basis for livestock feed for what you see in the supermarket. And, um, you know, once again, it's, this is a region that is very unique globally. There are four or five areas in the world that have, um, you know, basic, basically prairie derived soils. These are soils that have been in, they're sort of in temperate regions. They tend to be in the middle of continents and they, um, they had incredible gr natural grasslands for millennia and millennia you know, in the case of the Corn Belt, uh, with lots and lots of bison running over them, there are also huge amounts of wetlands. Uh, the, you know, the region, often forgotten today, just how much of that region was in wetlands. But these are, you know, incredibly productive ecosystems and basically machines for building soil and storing carbon underground. And, you know, basically, with settler agriculture that started around a little bit after the Civil War and that time frame, we've, you know, basically plowed up the entire region, drained the wetlands, and over the years focused on just two crops. We've wintered away all the other crops and focused on just corn and soybeans. And what I show in my book is when you do that, you're basically leaving the soil bare from the harvest time until the next year's crop can be planted and it can come up and establish a canopy. And in that period when there's no canopy and the ground is bare, you get, because of climate change again, you get these increasingly hard uh, late winter and spring storms 
that hit that soil and basically send it on move, uh, you know, send it flowing down into streams and, uh, and rivers. And, you know, we're seeing catastrophic soil loss in that area, you know, kind of similar, maybe even more dire than the, the water being tapped out of the Central Valley. And as a result, it's pretty clear that farming can't go on like that forever. And, um, you know, I, I think with climate change, we're seeing these trends accelerate. And, you know, so essentially in a very short time span, we are obliterating this incredible resource that, you know, this country basically took in the 19th century. Yeah. What a story. So let's go back to California for a second and talk about the drawdown of the aquifers, because <clears throat> that in turn lends itself to what you describe as land subsiding, meaning that it would like because there's less water to hold the land up, it falls down. And that that seems to have a big impact on the existing infrastructure for moving water. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Because that, that seemed pretty scary to me. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty dire feedback loop. Okay, so you you know you you're relying on in good years on on this water conveyed from the Sierra Nevada uh, snowmelt in these aqueducts, and it's a pretty cool system of it's basically all all gravity fed. You're you're using the sort of elevation drop from the mountains down to this bowl, you know, the bottom of this bowl in the Central Valley to move all this water around. So it's very, very based on, on gravity and maintaining elevation differences and what subsidence does. So you're exactly right. As the water is withdrawn, there's just nothing there to hold it up. And so the, the ground sinks and subsidence is happening at the at rates, um, 11, 12 inches a year in, in parts of the wow. San Joaquin Valley. And so, yeah, you're talking about real like noticeable movements happening, you know, kind of before our eyes. And, um, and so what happens is it doesn't happen consistently. The whole thing doesn't sink 11 inches. It's just, you know, here and there, parts of it sink at different rates. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it snarls up all kinds of infrastructure, roads and bridges. But for the water conveyance infrastructure, it's especially devastating because what you get are these pockets where this elevation system doesn't work anymore because you've got parts that have sunk um, down below where they're supposed to be. And so you, you get water being held up in the system and, and water spilling out and being lost and not, you know, irrigating crops. Mm -hmm. And you've got parts of it that are, you know, down their conveyance ability is down 20 and 30% in good years. And so when the water is not coming, you know, from, the mountains, of course, farmers revert to pumping more water. Mm. And as they pump more water, it, it subside, you, know, you get more subsidence and you get less water. You know, you get this, these foul ups in, in infrastructure and you get this feedback loop that is not taking you anywhere good in any way. And you're, <laughs> you know, you're, you're also getting this massive public bill to fix this infrastructure so that the, you know, the farmers are, you know, farm interests in the area are definitely going to the legislature and saying, Hey, you know, we need, we need money to fix this. And so you get this mounting bill. And um, as we know from the headlines right now, California has got a lot of problems right now. Oof. And yeah. it's, um, it's sort of in the pathway of a lot of different um, d disaster potentials. We're seeing, you know, raging fires right now. Um, and so there just isn't a lot of money at the state level to fix some of this stuff. And so you're, you're looking at a real crisis. Yeah, sure. Sounds like it. And then, you know, and then with the water intensive crops are ever on the rise. I mean, you've documented this and going after all the new almond farms, you know, all these nut trees, for instance, use huge amounts of water um, over the course of their many decades. And yet to this day, there is, according to your book, and also, I mean, my own research has shown there's really no mapping of water sources or, you know, there's no way of knowing how much water is left in aquifers. So why is that so hard to document uh, how much, you know, calculate how much water is still available and what it will take to, well, I think they know what it'll take to replenish it, but 
since they don't know where they're starting, there's no baseline. You know what I mean? So how, yeah. how, how does that, how is that going to work? Well, it's not going to work out in, in any good way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked, I've talked to scientists, really knowledgeable scientists who've told me that it's, you know, you know, somewhat expensive, but feasible, really not that different from, you know, if you have a big oil well yeah, in, Saudi, in Saudi Arabia or Texas, um, you know, there are scientific methods for getting a really good estimate of how much is in there um, because those are really big investments being made. But um, we, the same investments could be made and aren't being made for water. And, you know, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think probably part of the problem is that, you know, folks who have an interest in it know that it's going to be pretty bad news or are worried that it's going to be pretty bad news and, you know, don't want to talk about it. Don't want to, don't want us to know. Now we have seen scientific projects that can estimate not how much is there, but how much has been extracted and how much is extracted every year. And this is, um, you know, there's so much water under there that NASA scientists can look at, um, at satellites and gauge their, their, their path across the, you know, outer space around the earth. And the, um, the drop in water means literally less mass on the earth. And that means, uh, less gravitational pull. And that means a change in the, in the path of the satellite. And when they do that, um, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they just find, you know, shocking rates of withdrawal of groundwater all throughout California, especially in the Central Valley. But it's one of the most uh, stressed aquifers in the world. I mean, I think that the, um, and I'm going to, uh, you're going to have to teach me how to pronounce this because I always screw it up. But the Ogallala, is that right? Ogallala, yeah. Ogallala is um, is on par with you know Central Valley and Ogallala, two the two most important U.S. Uh, aquifer systems. Right. Are um, are among I think Ogallala is actually worse, but they're among the most stressed aquifers in the world. Um, and yeah, you're right. Um, there should definitely be investment made to figure out how much is there. And then we can compare the rate of extraction to how much is there. And I don't think that the news is going to be good, Katie. <laughs> no, Tom, I don't think it is. And I, I think it's fascinating that people are more inclined to bury their heads in the sand uh, than put in the money and the, and the time to figure this out and then adjust your crops accordingly, you know, adjust what you're planting, adjust how many trees are going in and, you know, just kind of figure out how to marshal the resources that remain so that they will, you know, last for more than the next decade, for example. Anyway, um, uh, let me ask you this, because I want to get to this point here. Uh, looking back at the droughts and floods that have been recorded over the last century, you, you had a long section on um, the history of both droughts and unexpectedly floods. And I know you've been asked this on other, you know, in other interviews, but I thought this was particularly interesting. Um, I want you to talk about the giant flood in 1862 in Central Valley, which was like a one in a 100 or 200 year time frame, um, and, and, and just kind of explain what, <laughs> what would happen, like how likely it is for that to happen again, and then also what would happen, what it would mean if it happened now. Yes. Um, yeah, story. it is. I know. It is an incredible story. And it, it, I find it to be painful to talk about during these fires because yes. California has has had enough. And we actually published a, an excerpt on Mother Jones right when the fires were taken off. Mm. And it was kind of a facepalm for me. Like these people over there are dealing with enough right now, but this is reality. So we have to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, so um, this is if you talk to California people like hardcore California residents who are multi-generational there, who are, who love California history, a lot of them will, t will tell you they've never heard of this event, huh. but so California becomes a state in the 1850s. So not long afterwards, and you know, basically the gold rush is what, what drove statehood. So, so the gold rush um, is, goes on and it's already in the process of busting and we're in 1861 and it starts raining in December, I think it was, and it just doesn't stop. 
Um, I think it's literally a biblical 40 days and 40 nights kind of a situation. Wow. And it rains and rains and rains and rains. And the rain hits snow in the Sierra Nevada. It had been a snowy winter, but this precipitation came as rain. And it causes this biblical scale flood. And the entire Central Valley that goes from not that far north of L.A. all the way pretty close to the Oregon border. It's this kind of bowl slices through the center of the state. It fills up with 20, 30 feet of water. Wow. And it just, you know, it is just this unimaginable cataclysm. And um, at the time, it was fairly sparsely populated. There were Native American groups who had lived there forever. And there's actually, I cite them in the book, there are um, accounts from the time of people uh, observing that some Native American settlements got up and f fled early on while the um, sort of settler agriculturalists who were there in the Central Valley were like, huh, I wonder why they're leaving. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and then this, uh, this giant flood hits. And there's you know, stories of houses floating, um, basically wiped out the entire cattle industry. So at that time, the Central Valley agriculture was basically cattle and it was basically um it had recently been mexico the, the whole place had recently been mexico before it became a u.s state and most of the cattle ranchers were mexican nationals who were you know u.s citizens upon the you know treaty that handed uh, california over to the united states and um, so basically they, and, and you've got settlers who are looking at this, this uh, cattle market and, you know, there's a lot of like leather trade. And also you got these mm. cities like San Francisco that need, need food. And so these, you know, white settlers are like, well, the gold rush didn't work out. Maybe we'll go into agriculture, but they were having trouble getting the land from the, um, from the, from the Mexican settler or from, from the Mexican nationals. Uh, so this flood happens and, you know, once again, you know, there wasn't a lot of, of people living in the area. Uh, it was fairly low population, pretty decent sized cattle herd. So this flood wipes out the cattle herd. And an, an example of Naomi Klein style disaster capitalism, it basically wipes out these, these ranchers who um, end up losing everything and selling their land to white settlers for pennies and a dollar. And that's when white settlers took over the Central Valley. And it was too expensive, really, to rebuild stock and, you know, sort of buy cows and breed them and rebuild this, uh, this big herd. And that was when uh, Central Valley agriculture went from cattle farming to mostly wheat. But they started putting in, um, you know, field crops instead of, instead of cattle. And the, the sort of search for how do we um, sort of get control of the Sierra Nevada water goes into motion almost immediately. And also there was a lot of groundwater, you know, as technology takes off and you get electricity in coming decades, there was a lot of investment in, in wells. And, um, and there was in the early 20th century, there was a lot of massive subsidence there because they weren't really, they weren't able to control. They had these mighty rivers that were taking most of the, um, the water from the Sierra Nevada out to the sea. And um, there were like local down projects and private down projects, but they didn't really work. And, um, and so you, you had massive sub subsidence in the early part of the 20th century. And that was really the excuse to get the government, to get government resources to pay for this irrigation infrastructure. And so now you've got the Central Valley Project, which is national, and the State Water Project, which is a state-funded um, bit of, uh, of uh, infrastructure. And, um, and so, that, you know, that's basically when they built that infrastructure, they kind of, you know, um, breathed a sigh of relief that, oh, we've stopped subsidence because now we've got the Sierra Nevada to water our farms and we can lay off the aquifers. And that actually held out for a while. They, they did stop subsidence. There was a balance achieved, but it starts to unravel in, around in the 90s. You know, basically farming becomes such a big business that they, they start using more water than can be supplied by the Sierra Nevada. And also, as you mentioned, 
um, the, the snowpack started to shrink. And so that's when we, we got the, 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 the present day crisis, all of which is to say that this event that has been forgotten completely shaped the future of California agriculture. And so, yeah, the, the real key question is, was it a freak event? Could it happen again? And I've got two bits of bad news on that. <laughs> the first is that sort of your, uh, what do they call them? Your paleo, uh, paleoclimatologists, people who look back right. before, um, you know, modern times and look at stuff like tree rings and sediments in, uh, in rivers and streams. They set to work about 20 years ago on the sort of deep climate history of California. And what they found is not comforting at all. What they found is evidence of five, five or six floods in the past thousand years that are bigger than the, the scale of the one in, um, in 1861-62. So that one didn't even make it into some of the fossil record because it wasn't big enough. <laughs> and so that was a, a chilling discovery because this, this is something that, that does happen in California, they found. So that's that's bad news. Or so even I was talking to this one scientist, and the way he explained it was: so the background is you get one of these every hundred hundred to two hundred years, uh, but then you take climate change and add climate change to the template, and what you get is very disturbing because, um, so the weather in California, you know, basically it gets its weather in the winter months. That's because there, there are these pressure systems. I don't, I can't explain the, the meteorology, but there's these pressure systems that send the weather coming from the South Pacific north and south. And that's why in um, the Pacific Northwest is so wet because it's getting so much of that, um, of that South Pacific weather in the summer months. Mm -hmm. Um, but in the winter months, and so, and that's all, so here's also why California will, will probably have more mega droughts because we'll get, it'll basically, the, it's a story of fewer and more powerful storms. And so fewer storms means that in the months when California can accept weather because of these pressure systems, um, there is more likelihood to miss some of the important storms that create this great snowpack. And that's where droughts came from. That's, you know, basically mm -hmm. the story of the 2011-2016 drought. And it's quite likely that more of those will come. And there's also huge mega droughts in the paleo record of California, which is not um, comforting either. Um, but then the other thing is that the for our flood purposes, the fewer but bigger storms comes into play. And we could see giant megastorms coming in that are super powerful, at least as powerful as 1861-62 coming in, and they would, you know, create a massive flood. And there's a scientist named Daniel Swain at UCLA who's been documenting this, and I, I cite a study in the book, but he figures that, you know, basically, I think it's, I think the time frame is 2050. Another one, you know, I hesitate to say this because it's so scary, but another one is more likely than not, they conclude, in the next several decades. And, and that's just, you know, it's just mind boggling because, you know, the question I know that you're going to ask me is like, what would happen if, uh, if one happened now? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, let's just say that the population of the Central Valley is many times greater than what it was um, in 1861-62. And you've got these budding population centers. It's, you know, cities like Fresno and Bakersfield are growing yeah. as, they're, you know, there are lots of immigrants are moving to them as they always have. They've, they've always been immigrant centers. But the, you know, kind of crazy real estate uh, markets in the L.A. area and the Bay Area are sending people out in search of cheaper places to live. There are um, literally Bay Area bedroom communities coming up in the um, more central to northern part of the Central Valley. So you've got this, this population boom happening there. And then you think about, um, you had a few hundred thousand cows, I believe, in 1861-62. Now there are many times, you know, there are many more cows now because the dairy industry is so strong. So you've got this, um, and then you've got dairy cows being so big. I did some research in the book about that. 
And, you know, you've got these hundreds of thousands of enormous dairy cows. They made them really big. They bred them to be really big so they can produce a lot of milk. But how are you going to move a bunch of dairy cows by the ten and hundred thousands out of the, out of harm's way in a flood? And uh, you, so you think about all the biohazard implications of dead cows. And if you look at the 1861 flood, you'll see accounts of, you know, dead pigs floating down the streets of Sacramento. Oh my and God. we know now that's, that's biohazard that, you know, there are all yeah. kinds of diseases that can be spread by such a thing. And we're at much higher numbers. Now there's a huge, fairly huge population of chickens. And then you think about all the pesticides and agrochemicals that could be, um, you know, I, talk in the book about just the, you know, massive pesticide use in the area. Um, and um, yeah, it's just really hard to see what would happen. We got a dose of it, a taste of it a couple of years ago when there was a giant, you know, one of these giant winter storms hit and the dam above Oroville, which as we speak now, I believe that region is engulfed in fire, mm -hmm. but they were almost engulfed in flood just, I believe it was 2017. And the Orville Dam, which is a huge dam, came really close to failing, and they evacuated 100,000 people. Wow. And let's just say it did not go well. I mean, there were traffic jams. You know, we don't have any kind of mass transit, so everyone has to get in their car. Mm -hmm. And so there were traffic jams, and luckily the dam survived. Um, the near disaster was averted, but... Um, it's just really hard to prepare a, you know, a modern society for such a thing. And I was talking to this researcher, Lucy Jones, with the U.S. Geological Survey, and she was pointing out that, you know, in 1861, we didn't have electricity. So people were living without electricity. But today, um, elect, you know, being a, without electricity can be a life or de death situation. Think about nursing homes, hospitals. Sure, um, and so, you know, there, there is also that aspect to it. And, um, and so it's just, it's really hard to map modern, you know, 21st century American life onto a flood of that, of that scale. Really? That, that is absolutely terrifying. You're so right. We're going to take a short break for a sponsor drop and we'll be right back with Tom Philpot talking about his new book, Perilous Bounty. The looming, uh, sorry, the looming collapse of American farming and how we can prevent it. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Rancho Gordo. Over the past 19 years, Rancho Gordo has led the revival of heirloom beans, taking the lowly bean from a healthy but neglected member of the vegetable family to a near superstar status ingredient. From growing the best and most interesting beans available to making sure all crops are fresh and a pleasure to cook with, Rancho Gordo's mission is to encourage cooks to experience and enjoy the unique flavors of heirloom beans. Rancho Gordo produces nearly 30 varieties of heirloom beans and lentils, as well as corn, grains, chilies, and other cooking ingredients. You can learn more at ranchogordo.com. That's R-A-N-C-H-O-G-O-R-D-O.com. And we are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. We're chatting with Tom Philpot about his new book, Perilous Bounty. I want to jump because we've, you know, we're, of course, as I knew, we would never get through all of my questions. But I, one of the things that really struck me in this book was uh, you have a section on how farming is now becoming more and more of an asset class on Wall Street. And I have also documented this um, you know, just uh, sort of not just foreign investors, but just even like, you know, our own pension fund TIAA is a big investor in farmland and, you know, and uh, but there are many other firms that are getting into into the action, uh, creating hedge funds around farming and so forth. So who talk to us about what those what the implications are for agricultural land Um you know, that is owned not by individuals who consider themselves stewards, uh, as it were, of the land, but in fact, you know, big investment companies that are looking to make a profit and pay their shareholders. What, what is that going to mean for farming, do you think? There was a time when I was a financial journalist. And I know. I worked on a um, trade publication that was down on, you know, Wall Street area that um, 
when that's investment advisors. And I can tell you that Wall Street likes to sell investors what they call a story. Hmm. And the story, so that, that's what, exactly how they'll put it. And, and the story on pharma as, as an investment class is that it, it's been rising in value for, for a while um, and doesn't seem to, um, it does fall a little bit with dips in commodity prices, but it doesn't fall as much as you think it would. And, and so it offers, you know, th- so this is me as a Wall Street pitchman talking to you. So it offers this return on your investment. So you buy it and the price, the, the asset appreciates, so it goes up. Meanwhile, it throws off some income because you can rent it out as a farm. You can farm it yourself. Obviously, most people rent it out as a farm. And so you're getting income on top of um, asset appreciation. And so investors like that. And it seems to not be very correlated to the S&P 500. So it's diversification, investors like that. It seems to be a good play on if if we're worried about inflation, as a lot of investors um, always are, I think, foolishly. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be too affected by inflation. And so that's the story. And it's an, it's an attractive one. Um, sure. And, and so there is a farmland, um, um, what is it called? A, an index, which is a, a big deal to have an index. That means investors can sort of track the class as a whole. And that adds, that leads to more investment. And so we're seeing especially in the 2010s in California, we saw a big influx of investment uh, there. The stock market wasn't doing that much for a while and interest rates were low. And so you were kind of punished for keeping your money in in bonds and things like that. And so there was this little boom in, especially in California, in in farmland, in in buying up farmland there. And there was a story of sort of Asian, Asian, the, the, the growing middle class of Asia eating um, almonds is basically this, you know, the story in a nutshell, so to speak. And so <laughs> there, there was this, and, and still is uh, to some extent, um, this sort of, um, you know, big investment vehicles going in and buying up farmland and, um, and then, you know, selling it, you know, basically renting it out to management companies who, who there isn't really an individual farmer to point at as a management company to manage that land and sort of maximize production of, uh, of almonds. And I think the, the biggest, you know, the scary thing there is that you're not trying to pass this pretty piece of land, this productive piece of land onto an heir. You're just trying to keep, you know, some investor who's never going to see it, who is only looking at numbers in a you know, on a computer screen to see how their, their, you know, portfolio is doing, you know, that's, that's the extent of their knowledge of it. And so you get a pretty short term, let's say 20 year outlook, let's squeeze this land for all we can get and get out, get what, get out what the getting is good. And I think that explains really a lot of this um, steady move away from row crops into almonds in California because uh-huh. there is, you know, basically there's a there's always a lucrative market in almonds. They, they get a pretty good price in the marketplace, and if you make the investments, you know, putting out the the wells and the you know irrigation lines, which really all really really expensive, they're very low labor, um, not very labor intensive, and you know you've got this market in both American consumers and global consumers, eating more snacks, wanting more, you know, sort of high quality proteins and fats. Almonds are right in that sweet spot. Um, and so they're managing their land to maximize profits in the pretty near term. And I think that's a problem. It's less of a problem in the Midwest uh, because as I show in my book, there isn't, land values are, are, are high. It's basically the, um, the capitalized, um, benefit of all the farm subsidies that go on there of various kinds. Uh, land values are pretty high, but there's not very many profits to eke out in growing corn and soybeans. And so I think investors are quite happy to, let's say, own shares in Bear or Syngenta and you know play on the area like that than they are to actually own farmland. And so I think we've seen more limited move into corn and soybeans in the Midwest, just because it's such a crappy commodity. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a crappy commodity 
uh, situation where the landowners or the farmers there, land renters too, are at the at the uh, mercy of the, these global commodity markets that have put corn and soybeans at low prices really for decades, except for interruptions like the ethanol boom recently. So there's not a whole lot of profit in owning the land. You want to you know own the companies that sell to farmers to um, to grow corn and soybeans. But I was just talking to an investment advisor recently. Actually, he runs an investment fund that focuses on farmland. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me that he feels like California right now is too expensive. The, the land there is too expensive. He, he, he didn't think water, he, water wasn't part of his consideration. He just thought it was just too high of a price. And he didn't like the Midwest because of its reliance on two crops and just what I just said about commodities. Mm. And so he's really focusing his attention on the Delta area, mm. which does grow corn and soybeans, but it can also move into stuff like cotton. It can move into sort of industrial scale vegetable production if the, if the prices are right. Yeah, There's rice. And so if one thing isn't working, he just feels like, in the in the uh, in the corn belt, basically you're cornered into corn and soybeans. Their prices are, are related on each other, related to each other. There's um, there's nothing you can do if they're going down. But in the delta, this is where these big investors are are swooping in, which I think is interesting in a lot of ways. Um, it's one of the last areas of significant African American land ownership, and uh, it's interesting to see these these giant funds swoop into the area that that's beyond the scope of my book um yeah i I don't talk about that in the book but um but but i do think um the the problem with this is that you're managing the land explicitly for a profit um you know you basically want to make as much profit as you can and sell while the getting is good and i think there's lots of bad incentives um wrapped up in that yeah me too i find it extremely alarming that and allowing our uh, agricultural assets to be sold to foreign nations, which is another thing that some states have rules and regulations about who can buy, but nobody really has the bandwidth to, uh, you know, a lot of these foreign uh, companies that want to buy agricultural assets here will form an American LLC and then acquire land. But meanwhile, the actual uh, pro- you know, products or whatever are in fact not ultimately benefiting the American population. But that's another whole conversation. I, we, are, we really have to move along here because um, you know, people's attention span doesn't really function past about 40 minutes. So, but I okay. do want to talk to, about one thing about you know, turning, you know, talking about Iowa, and that is the loss of the topsoil, which you alluded to at the beginning of the show, and what that you know, what that ultimately is going to mean in terms of the long-term health of the region, but also, um, you know, the impact on water supplies, because that's where you have, you know, all of the nitrogen and phosphorus that are flowing into the water systems that are creating dead zones and so on. So I wanted you to like chat for a little bit about, you know, how, um, what that's going to look like in the coming 10, 15 years, and also what, why it's so hard to get farmers um, to change that, you know, two crop system like that has really been a challenge for many reasons. And yeah. I, I want to like I want to wrap up with that particular little you know bundle of information. Yeah. In terms of what the impact is going to be in the near term, you know, when I was um, driving around in uh, 2019, so they had this really stormy, uh, you know, basically from early winter. I'm sorry, from late winter to um, early summer, they had this incredibly rainy season, one of the rainiest uh, mm. seasons ever in the Midwest j- um, just last year. And I was driving around the area with this guy, R- Richard Cruz, who's a scientist, a soil scientist at Iowa State University. And we were, it was like June and some of the corn crop was coming up, but most of the land was just really muddy. Planting got delayed. I was seeing these really awful scenes of, you know, these basically scars in the land where just soil had just washed away. And there were also, when we were driving, when there was a field of established corn, you know, Richard Cruz, he, you know, he had me sort of focus my attention on looking at the landscape. And so you'd see this pretty rich green and then these little pockets where it's paler green. Mm. And he was telling me that those are the areas, you know, basically this 
uh, intensity of the green is a good proxy for this. Those are the areas that have lost topsoil and are getting down to, you know, subsoil and they're just not yielding as much. Their yields are a lot less. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, what that, the incentive that gives to farmers is to just really pound everything with, and that, you know, there was one study suggesting that, you know, 10%, I believe the number was, it's in my book, it might've even been 20% of the land in the corn belt is not yielding enough to offset farmer costs um, in, in, most, in most years. It depends on what the, what the price of the corn is, but it's, they're already seeing in about 10 to 20% of the land, it's just not, it's not productive enough to make sense farming. Mm. And so what farmers do to make up for that is, I think they just pound the rest of their land with more chemicals to bring the yields up as high as they can, and, um, and in, in doing so, they sort of offset. So it, 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 we're not seeing it in, in corn yields yet. But as these abuses of soil continue and as these, these low productivity zones grow and expand, then that is not going to be possible anymore. And, you know, of course, when they're, you know, dumping on the chemicals and, you know, you know, this whole cocktail of fungicides and herbicides and everything to, that they can do to get the yields as high as possible, they're not in general uh, laying off these low, low yielding areas. It's going on those low yielding areas too, and they're more prone to runoff. So you're getting more of these chemicals in the soil, I'm sorry, in the water, and you're getting, you're increasing the, the pollution problem. And, you know, I think, you know, to get to your really important question of how do we get away from these monocropping systems, I think it's actually fairly simple and we do know the answer. Mm-hmm. And it's that it's not going to happen voluntarily. We've been trying to do it voluntarily. You know, we've known this about this system being really bad for soil, you know, focusing on corn and soybeans. We've known that's a really bad idea for a number of decades now. Mm-hmm. And there have been a lot of great groups like the Practical Farmers of Iowa there's the um, NCR, the, the Natural Resources uh, Conservation Service, which is a branch of the USDA, have been telling farmers, hey, you should consider a third crop and cover crops. You should think about ways to cover your land up in the winter. Wouldn't that be great? And <laughs> the, um, since it's essentially a voluntary uh, system and the incentives the other direction are so much higher, so there are conservation payments potential for things like cover crops and um, for doing things differently, broadening the rotation. But the incentives for keeping it in corn and soybeans are so much higher with the subsidized crop insurance and the various commodity payments that still exist that farmers really have no incentive to choose, They're, uh, to, to, to change. They're on this treadmill. The, the sort of government payments are keeping them on it. And I think Trump is, um, has increased the treadmill just by dumping cash in the farm country um, since about twenty seven since about twenty eighteen with his his trade war he's yeah. just taken all he's, he's found all of this extra money conjured up out of air to dump into the Midwest and it's just all that is just sort of keeping farmers on that treadmill and I think changing the policy and you know we could argue and do a whole show on the best way to do it but it just has to be done just figuring out a, a way to pay farmers to do something else besides corn and soybeans. And that just gets us back to the whole political problem of how these companies that sort of benefit from the system are also really good at lobbying and campaign finance. And they make the farm bill a very static process. Like we know there might be changes at the margin, but right. you know, since we've been covering it, Katie, there, there have been reforms but this broader system of propping up corn and soybean production in the Midwest has not been challenged. And I think that is going to be the key going forward. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, majorly, you know, paying these guys, not just, you know, subsidies, but giving them the labor, the money for the labor that they need to add extra crops, the fuel that they need to be able exactly. to. I mean, there are so many things that we're expecting farmers to take out of their own pockets when their margins are already pitiful. 
Um, and also, you know, p- prices are so dependent on commodity markets when you work in that, when you play in that sandbox, as it were. So anyway, Tom, to be continued, because honestly, I could have gone on and on and on about this book. I, let me just say to people, again, the name of the book is Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. Um, Tom, why don't you spend a few minutes promoting uh, the book and yourself and any events that you have coming up in the near future or a blog or a website that you might be uh, have developed for the book, you know, just, you know, give us your pitch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Katie, first of all, I can't thank you enough for all of the attention you've given me over the years. It's really helped me get my work out and I oh, appreciate that's so this nice interview. Of you. Um, and I appreciate all the work you do. And in terms oh, of thanks, events, <laughs> um, you know, I am terrible with dates, but I can tell you that I will be presenting at the Brooklyn Book Festival at some point this fall. Uh-huh. And well, do you the- have a website where people can see your schedule or um, where you have that- like remote events and stuff? I have been doing a lot of rem- remote events and I think they're pretty, I mean, there are a couple of stragglers coming up, but Katie, you're putting me on the spot of, of being, of, <laughs> my website's not been updated. All right. Uh, never mind. Can, anyone, can anyone here play this game? But um, the Brooklyn Book Festival and the Texas Book Festival, I'll be in, in both of those places. Uh-huh. I just had a great conversation with my book editor at Bloomsbury and you can find that on the Bloomsbury USA Facebook page. Right. Um, I had a great virtual event with my Mother Jones editor, Maddie Oatman, which I believe is available on the Mother Jones Facebook page. And you did you do the bite? Did you do a bite episode for this? We did a bite episode uh, a couple of weeks ago where we talked about it. Um, and a great episode featuring the Palestinian um, British chef, Sammy Tamimi. We, I also interviewed him on that podcast. There's also a secret ingredient podcast, my other podcast that I do, right? where my co-host Raj Patel and Rebecca McEnroy interviewed me about it. Um, I was on Marketplace. You can Excellent. find that interview with Kai Rizdahl. Oh my God. I love Kai Rizdahl so much. He's like my favorite. I absolutely- He did a very solid interview. I bet. I mean, it was like, it was one of those five minute deals, but yeah. he did a, He did a really good job. Yeah. I need to go back and listen to that. Actually. I don't like to listen to other interviews before I do one. So yeah. anyway, you know, I'm the same I don't way. Want to duplicate the questions or anything. So anyway, but Tom, thank you so much for this. And uh, thanks to my listeners and my sponsor. Uh, see you next week, folks, with another fascinating episode of what doesn't kill you food industry insights. Thanks for tuning in today. Bye-bye. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>